We'd like to give a special thanks to Astro Agency, the executive producers of Space and 60. They provide strategic marketing support exclusively for the space sector. Strategic because their team have all the vast experience working within space companies are setting them up. So they specialize in getting technical messaging and brand positioning just right, as well as having the industry connections to organize podcasts just like this one and their space bar webinars, which we'd highly recommend for new space networking. Check Astro Agency out on social media. They're in all the usual places. Welcome to Space in 60, bringing you stories from the people doing amazing things in the new space revolution. And joining Chad and I again today, we have Dallas Campbell. Hey, Dallas, what's your favorite planet? After this chat, my favorite planet's going to be Mercury. Who in the world could we ask about Mercury? There's only a few specialists out there. There's not many. There's not many, particularly Mercury's magnetosphere, which is a particularly niche area. You know, the other day, Dallas, I was in the library and just thumbing through the section on Mercury, and I came across a doctoral thesis. A doctoral thesis. Called The Auroral and Ionospheric Flow Measurements of Magnetopause Reconnection During Intervals of Northward Interplanetary Magnetic Field. It was the most amazing thing. Oh my God. Yeah, I know that one. I know that one. I've read it before. It's very, very good. They did a sequel to it, which wasn't as good, but that the original was very, very good. That one happened to just pass me by. I don't know. Well, luckily, we've got someone who knows a bit about it. We've got the author here. Dr. Susie Imber is here from the University of Leicester. Should we get her on? Absolutely. Let's get Susie on. She's one of my science heroes. I was actually going to do this really great introduction on your background, Susie, and your, your PhD topic, but I couldn't get it all out in one breath. So I was hoping you might be able to tell us a little bit about your background, why you wanted to appear on Space in 60 today, and, and help us understand what your space moment was and your, your PhD and all of those good things. I didn't have a space, space moment. It's so disappointing to say I don't have a space moment, but I really don't. There's no defining thing. you know. It's, I know. like that about you, though, because everyone's like, oh, I grew up with Apollo, or oh, space shuttle, wow. And you're like, yeah. <laughs> You've got like, I'm nothing, not even remotely interested. In, no, uh, I really wasn't <laughs> that interested in space growing up at all, really. So I did an undergrad degree in physics and kind of got interested in space science while I was at university and kind of carried on and did a PhD in space physics. And uh, you were asking me about the title of my <laughs> dissertation, which actually now I can't remember. <laughs> Ionospheric and auroral flow measurements of reconnection during intervals of northward interplanetary magnetic field, I think, is the, was its title. Catchy, yeah, catchy. I have space moments, but I don't have any qualifications in space. I have qualifications in no space <laughs> no moments. moments. So. so together, we're the perfect team. <laughs> I can tell you nothing about Mercury's magnetosphere. Yes. But I can talk to you about STS-1 and other things. <laughs> space history is sort of my thing. I got really interested in space history. I don't know why, really. I, I, actually, I tell you what it was. For me, it wasn't not even so much space. It's, it's more space as this kind of great, interesting cultural canvas, I think, that, that I find interesting. The people, the weird stories, the reasons why we like to explore things. Tell us about your background in the science of space. I understand you have a very keen interest in one of our 
neighborhood planets. I do, yeah. So I started off looking at the Earth and that that ridiculous sort of PhD title was associated with looking at the Earth and space weather at the Earth, so the impact of the sun on the Earth system, which is sort of relevant to humanity in different ways. So big space weather events can damage infrastructure that we rely upon, for example, satellites and power grids and that kind of thing. Then I moved to work for NASA after my PhD as a research scientist at NASA Goddard Space Flight Center, which is in Maryland, just outside of Washington, D.C., and I happened to be working there for this brilliant professor at the point at which their messenger mission got to planet Mercury. And it had been on its journey for seven years to get there. So some of my colleagues have been waiting seven years for it to arrive. And I just kind of turned up like full of enthusiasm as it got to Mercury and started working on data from that mission. And it was really exciting because we were the first people to get the data back because NASA had built the spacecraft and launched it. So it's sort of an exciting moment to work in that field. And I've carried on studying Mercury and the Earth since then. You know, Mercury is really interesting. And in today's world of new space and this culture that we've built around commercialized space, Mars tends to be the, the superstar and get the headline for, for all of the activities going on, followed by the moon. But, but why Mercury? Why is Mercury so interesting to space and why isn't getting more attention? I think a lot of attention comes from the media associated with some of the commercial space companies as well as the space agencies. So the space agencies will shout about Mercury, but people like Elon Musk and SpaceX are less interested in Mercury. And there's no immediate gain financially from going to Mercury. If you think about the moon and Mars, we're talking about sending people there. We're talking about mining resources. So you can see where people get excited by that. Mercury is just purely for the science, purely for, for understanding a different world. And the reason Mercury is important to me, well, actually, it's important for a couple of reasons. One is that it sits really close to the sun and it's got a really weak magnetic field. So Mercury experiences your kind of worst possible space weather event you could ever see on the Earth. Mercury experiences that every day. So if I want to understand space weather at the Earth, Mercury is a great place to try and understand the physics behind it because those massive space weather events that we could see here only happen once every century or so. So not frequently enough for us to really be able to measure and assess. Right. So Mercury is a great sort of sample for that. And the other thing that's interesting about Mercury is that it's a really sort of small body, but it's orbiting as close to our parent star as any planet is in our solar system. And that's interesting because we're finding other planets orbiting other stars elsewhere in the universe. And many of them are very close to their parent star. These exoplanets, it's easier for us to see the ones close to their star. So we're sort of biased towards finding those planets. But the nearest planet we have to really study, to compare with them is Mercury. And so understanding the dynamics of Mercury and how it's driven by its star is really important to understand those exoplanets. Right. My background really has two moments that were around space and geography. And I spent a, a ton of my time as a, as a kid with my legs crossed, sitting in the bottom of the, the closet, reading my brother's National Geographic magazines from cover to cover. And I developed this huge interest in in geography and people around the world as well as space through the you know my first time that I was able to see the the space shuttle discovery and those really formed how I look at at space and the science has always interested me tremendously for the sake of science but there's this huge commercial push that NASA and other space agencies have always emphasized that it's more than just the science it's the science and how we can take that and apply that to our, our daily lives and, and things that we encounter every day here on Earth. And when we think about the science of, of Mercury, is there anything about the science of Mercury 
that we can learn from and develop technology around that really changes how we live our life here on Earth? You know, my area of expertise is space weather, like I mentioned, and that's a really good example of, of, of exactly that. So we are trying to predict space weather events at the Earth. We look at the sun all the time. We monitor it. We try and see big explosions coming off the solar surface, and we try to forecast if they might hit the Earth, and if they do, what might happen. But it's really hard for us to do. The predictions are really hard. So sort of seeing when it's going to hit the Earth, the timing, the severity is very difficult. And one of the most important things when you're trying to predict these events is the direction of the sun's magnetic field at the point at which it encounters the planet. And you can't see that. So that's really hard. You can't, you can't really you know, see it with instrumentation very easily unless you have a spacecraft and it comes past a spacecraft and you measure it and that you, know, you can only really tell that way. So when it's close to the sun, this big event coming our way, you can't tell the most important thing you need to know about it. So space weather is going to affect us more and more as we become increasingly reliant on technology and understanding the physics behind it is really important. And that's what we're trying to do at Mercury, understand those extreme space weather events that have the potential to really affect society. So that's the first sort of way that Mercury helps us at the Earth. But also, if we really want to understand how planets form and evolve over their lifetime, Mercury is a great example, because if we look at the Earth, it's a terrestrial planet, a rocky planet, but it's been shaped by lots of different forces over the years. And so it's very difficult for us to trace back what the Earth looked like a really long time ago. Whereas if we look at Mercury, there's no vegetation, there's no sort of weathering, there's no atmosphere. So we're able to sort of look back in time, I guess, in some senses and look at sort of rocky planet evolution and formation over time. Mercury allows us to do that, as well as it being unique in its own various ways. So it's not sort of the most headline grabbing planet to study. It's kind but of badass though. There's I something there's is. something like it's the most badass planet. It's the most badass planet. I think in terms just because it's like it's just insane. It's yeah, it's a really sort of extreme yeah. in terms of its dynamics. So what are what are some of the extremes? Like, what are some things that we could relate to? We've got a lot of of listeners that are both very scientific, but also people that are just truly passionate about space and and just want to hear more. What are some of the extremes that that might help them to relate to what's happening on Mercury? Okay, let's think about why Mercury is such an oddball. It's the densest planet in our solar system. So if you account for the size of different planets and how you can end up with some compression due to the mass, Mercury ends up way, way off the scale. So it has an extraordinary amount of metal inside of it. It has a massive iron core, basically, way larger compared to its size than any other planet. So that means it has a strong gravitational field or like stronger for its size. Because it has more mass than you would expect for its size. And no one knows why it has so much metal. What is the gravity? And like, if you were to stand on Mercury, what would that, I mean? It would be very low because actually it's it's far less massive (laughs) than the Earth, but it's just for its size, it's it's massive. And so, yeah, so we're yet to understand really where all that metal came from. Or maybe Mercury was once a bigger planet and it got hit in its early life and the outer layers blasted off. And that's why there's not much rock and there's lots of metal. You know, no one really knows the answer to that. Maybe Mercury didn't form where we see it today. That's hard to understand why that would give us a planet we see, but it's a possibility. So there's lots of sort of questions about how the interior of Mercury evolved over its life. And if you're thinking about engineering, you know, one of the massive challenges we have is the, well, there's door two, one is radiation and one is temperature. So radiation obviously being so close to the sun, but the temperature thing's really interesting because we're launching spacecraft to Mercury and they're going to orbit from one side to the other of the planet in a few tens of minutes. And that's a temperature swing of about 600 degrees Celsius. Wow. So it's not just the extremes in temperature, 450 degrees on one side, minus 180 degrees on the other. It's how quickly you go from incredibly hot to ridiculously cold and how you have 
really precise scientific measurements that are able to be made despite that temperature swing. For our American friends, how hot is that really? Oh, oh you and your time zones and yeah. your measurements and you have extra L and aluminium. Someone <laughs> or no, extra something in aluminium, whatever it is. Aluminium. Someone else is gonna to have to work that one out. Sorry. It's hot. It's really what is it? Really it's, hot. It's yeah, really hot. Hotter than the hottest thing ever. Twice as hot as your oven when you cook a pizza, is what I normally say to kids. There you go. Wow. There you, there go. you go. Yeah. yeah the South Pole. Actually, I thought it would be hotter than. If it's just like two pizza ovens, mm, that doesn't sound that. But I've got one of those fire suits. You know those fire suits. Of course you do. Yeah, of course. <laughs> exactly. of course Why wouldn't you have suit. one of those? I saw one on eBay. It's like because it looks a bit like a space suit. It's like silver, and you know, and so I had to buy. And, it. and so you bought it. I cu- I can't remember actually, but I think it was at least you know something like that. Because you can go to like probably. furnaces and yeah, much, you know, that kind of stuff. Well, you're ready for your good, trip to Mercury um, in that case, aren't you? Yeah. Actually, I was doing a program. We were doing a show where we were going to try and journey to the center of the Earth. Oh, nice. And we were looking at all the kind of technical challenges of journeying to the center of the Earth. And one was heat, obviously. <laughs> so that's why I bought the fire suit. So I could like tick that one off. Yes. Well, and then so you, you've got problems. Next time you <laughs> pop in, you have to wear the fire suit. <laughs> yeah. I don't know where it is. I've actually. I've lost, it. No, I've lost it. It's kind of, it's. In, I think it may have got lost. And it was one of those, it was my most treasured possession for a long time. Because I just. <laughs> but, it was, but don't you also have a spacesuit? I think I've oh, seen you have a spacesuit, right? Yeah, well, because like, I suppose as a kid, we used to have this cartoon, Mr. Ben, you know, and Mr. Ben would dress up in different outfits and then he'd have that adventure, whatever it was. And there was one particular episode where he had a spacesuit. He'd go to the magic costume shop and there'd be a spacesuit and he'd have a space adventure. And I remember when I was a kid, being really little, being dragged around a stately home by my mum, this like old house, you know, really boring. And there was a suit of armour at the bottom of the stairs of this beautiful old house. And I remember thinking to myself, when I'm a grown-up, I'm going to have a spacesuit at, at the bottom of my stairs. <laughs> and so it's, it's always stuck in my head. So you do. <laughs> so, well, I used to have, I had a couple of Russian spacesuits, a couple of the Russian Sokol spacesuits knocking around for a while. And now I don't. Now I've got, oh, well, I've got a, Ryan Nagata, he makes very, very high fidelity spacesuit replicas, like kind of ridiculously next level stuff and all your listeners should immediately now go to ryan nagata's website and marvel at his work he did like costumes for first man you know and all these movies and what have you i mean they're brilliant brilliant things anyway one came up for sale so i bought it so i have a a sort of perfect visual replica of neil armstrong's spacesuit which you can borrow at any time you want i'm sure it would fit I, i think it would be great Neil and I are almost inch for inch the same height. I think so. Well, me too. He was, I think he was like 5'11 or 5'10 and a half, <laughs> whatever that is in American money. Clint is much taller than that, I suppose. <laughs> no, Clint, how t- you're, no, you're really tall, aren't you? I've never yeah, seen yeah. you stand up. My, seen my you dreams of being an astronaut were dashed decades ago. I was professional basketball player height by the time I was 13. So I'm really not able to to fit in any way, shape, or form into that's, anything related. I, that's so awful. Like I can understand like just being an idiot, you're not allowed to be an astronaut, but being forced into not being an astronaut because you're too tall, I think it's pretty hard. Well, the regulations are changing. They used to have to have perfect vision, don't you? And now you can wear glasses and have perfect vision. And you're well, an yes. Uh, STS-1, I believe John Young landed the first space shuttle wearing glasses. Is that true? Yeah. Hmm. The color blindness would keep me out of the category as well. I only okay, see really. <laughs> I see everything like you're looking at synthetic aperture radar. Okay. <laughs> so, so I could my guidance and navigation would be great, being like radar, but but no color yes. vision. I just 
see a space shuttle launch, actually. I saw you the, must have been I saw impressed the penultimate by... one. Yeah, well, there you I go. I went down and to you... Florida to, to watch it. Also, you... I mean, it was fun. It was fun. You went, to a la- you went to the launch of BepiColumba. I did. Mercury. Well... This is the Mercury wow. probe on its way to Mercury. Great. You went to I did. French, French Guiana. Guiana. That's yeah. That was exciting. That was very exciting. Although you're an awfully long way away at the point to which you're watching an Ariane 5 launch. That's, that's got to be great. I we, we tend to watch a lot of launches from here in... in out near the space coast. And I think the, the, the coolest version of watching a launch, we had a bunch of industry colleagues from Germany and from Canada come in and they showed up at, in the middle of the night and we took them down in the back of my Ford F-150 pickup. Everyone took nice. their lawn chairs and sat into the back of the pickup. And of course they had to have American beers. So we had Coors Light and a lot of other beers that aren't quite of the craft brew caliber and we had all of these international colleagues sitting in the back of a pickup on the on a hill watching spacex launch and those are some really unique ways to to watch a launch but where did you watch the launch from when you came here to florida were you actually at kennedy space center no 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 we so nasa has a various places you can go and if you if you apply for a pass you can get a sort of a pass onto an area but we're an awfully long way away i think bepi colombo was interesting because we had one of our instruments on board that spacecraft. And so that kind of really ups the ante as opposed to watching, uh, you know, watching obviously watching people launch also ups the ante, but watching a spacecraft you aren't really related to launch if there's no one on board, it's interesting, but you're really quite afraid when you're watching your own thing that might blow up on launch. I was lucky enough, a couple of times I've been to the Baikonur Cosmodrome in in Kazakhstan, which is where Soyuz launches from. And if any of your listeners get a chance to go there, it's going straight back to the 1950s. Like mm-hmm. When you're there, all the infrastructure is just in the 1950s. And you can't quite believe that it exists as a spaceport because all the windows are broken in the buildings and there's kind of like weird things, stuff, kind of Soviet space art everywhere. It's the craziest, craziest place. And you can go really close to the soil. <laughs> I mean, soil is quite a small rocket anyway. Yeah. But there's like a kind of a rusty barbed wire fence, an old soccer pitch rusting. And the, the guards are like, as long as you don't break rockets or whatever you like. <laughs> it's just, it's a really, and they have this kind of Russian priest in, with big kind of beard and robes who does this great ceremony and every all the press and everyone gets blessed with holy water. Well, and you they, were there for Tim Peake's launch, weren't you? I was there for Tim Peake's launch, yeah, was which, was, which was mad because we all went crazy because it was, you know, Tim Peake, European astronaut, a British astronaut. So that was, you know, that was a big hullabaloo. If he launches again, I'm gonna I'm gonna drive to Baikonur and watch him launch. But, but I'm worried that the bike because I think they're moving from Baikonur. I suspect the kind of Soyuz launches are moving to another spaceport. Yeah. And and if you can get a chance to go to Baikonur, you should because it's it's the beginning of human spaceflight started at that particular launch pad. You know, Sputnik was launched from there in 57. The whole history of space is still still there it makes mm. me really it makes me really happy that that it exists in this kind of world of spacex and crazy spacex space seats i'm glad there's a bit of the kind of rough and tumble of uh this kind the of Russian soviet exactly stuff still going so sudi i i know that you didn't have that space moment that drove you into the space industry but you've definitely come a long way and and have a, a great cv or resume that you're building within the space industry and do you think you'll ever get up Close and personal to a Soyuz? Well, I have got up and close personal to a Soyuz. But so uh, a few months ago, Tim Peake was launching a book that he had written. And I went and sort of did the book launch with him, sitting in front of his Soyuz capsule, which was which is in the Science Museum. So that's the closest I've ever been to a Soyuz capsule. And it was, was pretty fun to chat to him about what it was like to return 
on that tiny, tiny capsule. When you get up close to it, you cannot believe three people can fit inside it. I'm just amazed that if you look inside Soyuz and you look inside the Dragon capsule, I mean, Dragon, it's like white and touch screens and white suits and it's all, and Soyuz is, the yeah. 1950s yeah. is insanity. Yeah. When I look at the SpaceX capsule, I all I can think about, we live really close to Disney World here in Florida. And I think, yeah. okay, I have to get my fast pass so I can be next in line to ride the SpaceX capsule. I mean, it just <laughs> well, looks is- like something you would see at Disney World. Well, there is, and interestingly enough, like Werner von Braun, the German rocket scientist, of course, who who designed the Saturn V, and you know, he was good friends with Walt Disney. You know, Disney and Von Braun and the space industry back in the 1960s, they were sort of in cahoots because they realized that actually, if you want the public to get behind a space program, you need the PR of, of somebody like Walt Disney. So all those films, you know, Man in Space and all those Disney films that came out in the, in the, in the early 1960s, they were all, it was all a sort of calculated thing. The look of the spaceman, you know, the astronaut, those silver spacesuits of the Mercury spacesuits. And I think, you know, you look at SpaceX and Elon Musk, and there was something about that. You know, there is the fact that they got a movie costume designer to design those spacesuits. There is not very. It reminds me of von Braun and that whole. And wasn't there some world. story about those silver spacesuits, like they weren't silver or something, or the boots weren't silver or something? Oh, the Mercury suits. Well, yeah. well, the, yeah, the Mercury suits. The original Mercury astronauts wore were, were still. It was a, a, a aluminized or aluminiumized <laughs> aluminium coating. <laughs> um, it doesn't quite work, aluminiumized. <laughs> But they were just Navy Mark IV pressure suits. So they were kind of an olive green color. And they looked at those suits and go, well, we've got this new breed of explorer called the astronaut. We need we need something that looks a bit badass. And so, so they, they, painted, they painted them silver. And the, the excuse was, oh, they're kind of thermal properties of thermal reasons why. It was actually 3M who make post-it notes who, who designed that really? coating for, for the real nerds amongst it. <laughs> and so they spray painted silver. But the real reason was because they wanted to look good. And you got you put these guys, these handsome looking American military men in silver suits and it's Buck Rogers. And you know that was you know that was the reason. Anyway, there you go. And and Elon Musk suits exactly the same. It's like when that suit was being designed, he's like, we need it to make it look badass. Mm, it's got to look. And I don't think of, it does. I'm a bit cross about it. What do you think about his his program, Susie? If you had the chance to ride with SpaceX, would you? Yes, <laughs> but if I had a chance <laughs> to go into space with anyone, the answer would be yes. <laughs> I think he brings a lot of energy and some different views and kind of a different, not the typical government view of it. And he, he pushes the boundaries. Hey, so I, I like it. Me too. He's not scared to throw a rocket up, blow it up and try again. Different sort of model of testing than uh, many yeah. of the traditional methods of testing things, which is that you know they don't blow up a large number before they get it right. But uh, <laughs> that's the way forward. What's, I mean, he has an interesting, but you know, he's just they've just SpaceX have got the contract now for the new lunar lander as well. So, I mean, how does NASA? This is a question for you guys. How does NASA and, and SpaceX get along? I mean, they're two very different sets of values in a way, two different sort of personalities government organization and sort of a rocket boy maverick well, who divides think, opinion, but they're working together. No, so. I think this idea that, that the commercial space industry and the space agencies have to be in competition or, you know, in direct conflict is... No, I don't mean competition. I just mean that they're working in partnership. To, but exactly. do, you think they, do, do you think they kind of get on? As long I as mean, SpaceX is able to demonstrate that it's capable of doing the job required in a, a way that exceeds the safety margins, why not? Mm. I mean, they don't have to like Elon Musk in order to use his rockets if his rockets yeah, I guess are safe. So. And- I mean, I don't know. I just think about him smoking weed on Joe Rogan and yeah, like, can, are they kind of like NASA, NASA sort of official going, oh God, they, they, <laughs> you know, oh, oh shit. I, 
I think they I think they had to make a <laughs> or big did they deal not out care? because people expected them to make a big deal out of it. And, you know, I, I don't think that it was probably all of the 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 commotion that people made it out to be. But you know, I, I think that what SpaceX has done for the industry has just been tremendous. Have you ever wondered how to get your company's latest news in front of a global space sector audience? Then get in touch with Room Space Journal. With a large digital and print audience focusing on space, astronautics, science, and the latest news and developments from the sector, Room Space Journal is a direct route to increasing brand awareness in space. For the latest space news and to download a media pack, visit the website at room.eu.com. I hear that you were on a television show. Yeah, and it was it was a sort of half science, half reality TV type show. So kind of a strange combination of things. And it was set up really to, or the goal was to sort of find the next British astronaut. So Tim Peake had been to space and this had been a really big deal. The second British astronaut, the first being Helen Sharman. And the idea was that after Tim Peake had returned, you know, our eyes are looking around who, what does it take to be an astronaut? So it was meant to be kind of fun and educational and interesting. And they brought in the sort of reality television component by having a number of contestants. I don't know if you guys have the Bake Off. We have this thing called the Great British Bake Off, which is all about baking, which is this wonderful show where everyone bakes delicious food. And every time at the end of the program, someone has to leave. So you sort of start with 12 people and you whittle down to one person. And they took that sort of format and did exactly the same thing. 12 candidates were going to go through astronaut selection. And the idea was that the challenges and the tests would get harder and harder and harder. And as soon as you sort of aren't jumping over the bar anymore, you are removed from the process and the process continues until you end up with one person left. Um, So what was the most challenging or odd task that they gave you? It's a really good question, actually. So thinking about the tasks themselves, they were so varied. There were tests around sort of personality, endurance, fitness, things like scuba diving to the bottom of the ocean in Florida, actually, where there's this underwater facility called Nemo, where they do various types of training, including astronaut training. We got to go down to Nemo, this sort of underwater base, and then they told us the carbon monoxide alarm had gone off and we had to sort of fix the base. We went in a microgravity flight and had to assemble a Polaroid camera while floating around in microgravity. We went in a centrifuge at like 5G and had to speak Russian. So, you know, just tons of tests, one after the other. Amazing, amazing challenges that I would never have had an opportunity to do those things if it wasn't for the show. So I am really grateful for it. The only Russian I've ever learned was from the movie Rocky IV. Do you remember that movie? I will break you. I must, no, I must break you. I must break you. It's one of the great movies. I love that. That's, the, that's the extent of my Russian. So, so you, you've obviously had some, some great experiences in the space industry, despite not having that, that space moment that, that a lot of people have, but you've built a career for yourself around space and you possibly have the chance to, to go to space at some point. Well, you know, you would like to think that if you win a reality television series about space, about selecting an astronaut, the prize should be surely a ticket to space, right? But no, sadly not. So actually, I have a one in 20,000 chance, like everyone else, of going into space. So you're saying there's a chance. There's always a chance, <laughs> right? There's always a chance. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I think I think one thing that the show really did, it gave me a few things, actually. It gave me a lot more confidence because I did loads of challenges that I would have not predicted I would be able to do. So that was really interesting. But it also gave me an idea about 
kind of what they're really looking for when it comes to selecting astronauts. And it's not the obvious things you might expect. So I went into it thinking, well, surely you have to be an Olympic athlete. Surely you have to be the smartest person on the planet. You know, all of these things are really important. And actually, I realized as part of the process, that's exactly not what is required. In fact, you have to be fit and healthy. You have to have appropriate qualifications. But actually, they're just looking for people who are going to be good ambassadors for the space sector because actually they spend a few months, maybe a year or two of their lives in space. And the rest of the time, they're ambassadors for the for the space industry. They want people who are going to get along with other people, who can be good teammates, who can be good leaders in an emergency, who don't panic when things go wrong. So really, it was interesting just to get an insight into sort of how they try to assess those capabilities when they're doing astronaut selection. You know, there's there's such an exciting world happening right now in the space industry and human space flight. And right now with all of the investment from, from NASA through the CLIPS program, and we're starting to see other countries invest in human space flight as well. But I think one of the things that, that are often overlooked with the space industry and, and now the commercial space industry is how much benefit we're actually getting from space-based technology. And we get everything from satellite imagery, both optical and radar that can be used for lots of different applications. And I remember you saying at one point in an offline conversation, you were somewhat of a, a fan of synthetic aperture radar, you know, and I, I think am, that there's... I'm such, yeah, I'm such a mapping geek. I really am. I love maps. I love maps in every form that they come in. And yeah, I do use space technology for like a side project. I My main job is to study Mercury and its environment and the Earth and its environment. But have this real interest in mountains and where all the mountains are in the world and particularly South America. And so having done a bit of reading a few years ago, I realized that the list of mountains that exist was drawn up 35 years ago by the Scotsman called John Bigger. who got a map and a pencil. He marked all the positions of the mountains in the Andes with a pencil pretty accurately. Actually, I've spoken to him about it and I've seen his sketches and they're amazing. And he was basically almost correct for his mountains over 6,000 meters. But I kind of got to thinking, you know, gosh, in about 2014, 2015, is this the best we can do, really? So I got the data that you were just talking about, synthetic aperture radar data, measuring the altitude of the Earth's surface. And actually, that data set that I did this with the first was uh, taken by the Space Shuttle and wrote some computer code on our supercomputer at work to automatically identify mountains. And that really turns it into sort of an objective calculation. So it's not someone's opinion anymore. We have the best data that we can, and we're writing computer code to do the calculations for us. And so I redid the list of 6,000 meter mountains with a few sort of minor corrections. And then I ran the code on 5,000 meter mountains. And really in South America, there are a lot of mountains. There was 1,142 mountains above 5,000 meters. And many of them didn't appear on any lists. You know, they had no names. They'd never been climbed. And so this sort of led me down a rabbit hole of mapping mountains and finding unclimbed mountains. So for all of our American friends, how high are those mountains really? Uh, 20,000 feet. Does that help? Got it. There 6, you 000, are. 000. Thank you. 6,000 is 20,000 20, feet, I think. I didn't Thank work you for feet, that, Clint. I, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Clint. I needed that uh, that translation there. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, there, there are just so many things that are going on in space. And one of the things that we always hope from these podcasts that we do, and we have experts like you on all the time, we want to know how does space affect every one of us? every day, everything from the GPS guidance system in, in automobile to learning the height of, of mountains in, in South America. 
there are so many things that apply to our daily lives. And, you know, as we get close to the end of our, our time today, I think one of the things that, that I would love to know from your perspective is what do you think is the most exciting thing in space happening right now? I actually think, and this is controversial given that I study other planets, but I actually think one of the most interesting things is looking down on our own planet from space. There's a lot that is going on in planetary science more generally. So I guess I'll talk briefly about that. Bepi Colombo, the spacecraft that I work on, is on its way to Mercury. We'll get there in 2025. We are designing missions to go to Jupiter and its icy moons. Uh, Europa Clipper is heading, hopefully going to be sort of heading off uh, in the not too distant future, which is heading for, for Europa, looking for signs of life. We've got a mission which is heading for Titan that's going to be like a quadcopter flying around. So there's so much going on in planetary science, as well as launching the James Webb Space Telescope, which is going to enable us to look back to just a few hundred million years after the Big Bang. So that's sort of the larger scale things. But actually, I think for sort of everyday lives and, and the way that we can use space to enhance our lives, actually looking down on the Earth is the most important thing. So you mentioned imagery, but some of the things that we were just talking about on the space bar the other night, actually, is things like being able to monitor leaks in water infrastructure from space. You know, that kind of thing is crazy. Monitoring forestry and deforestation from space, getting to the point where we can do it in real time, where we can send someone to do something about it if we notice illegal logging in the rainforest, for example, is, is incredible. Monitoring wildfires from space, so a lot of disaster management and monitoring, but even things like monitoring the health of crops by monitoring soil moisture, for example, monitoring landslides and erosion, volcanic activity, so many things that we can do just by looking back at the earth that sort of give us this incredible capability to monitor our own planet and our climate and weather and sort of hazards. I think that area and sort of data analysis, large scale data analysis is a huge booming area in our field. Yeah. And as soon as we can learn to actually handle and deal with all of that data, I think the things that we're going to learn are, are just incredible. And today, one of the things that I see with many of the analysts in the industry on the earth observation front is there's so much high quality data today, the ability to get through all that data and learn from all of it through machine learning capabilities and, and being able to decipher and pull out the information that's truly valuable. I think we haven't even begun to tap into all of that, that capability there. What about you, Dallas? What do you think is the most exciting thing happening in space today? New spacesuits. <laughs> spacesuits. I don't, well, I, you know. Going back to the moon? Well, yeah. I mean, I, you know, I'm like you. I, I'm, I'm a sucker for the story. I'm a, suck, I'm a sucker. It's why we like Mars and the moon so much, because we like human stories and we like the idea of ex exploration. So I'm excited about Artemis, I suppose, going back to the moon. We really scratched the surface of the moon during Apollo. We were there for a matter of hours, really, a few, you know, a couple of days. I'm not sure the total EVA time of all the Apollo missions, but it's hardly anything at all. So actually going back to the moon, combining that sense of exploration with doing interesting science as well, particularly exploring the, the lunar south pole and, and, and just digging, digging a bit deeper combined with that sense of fun and excitement and adventure. How about you, Chad? Beyond the spacesuits, because that's just a given. I'm with you there, Dallas. Yeah. But I'm, I'm excited, uh, you know, combining both of those pieces. So the Earth observation and the machine learning and the tools and what we're learning of our own Earth. But being able to take those tools, those sensors, that data and that understanding and putting that on Mars or, you know, the moon. So we're able to properly map those, you know, from the beginning, get a baseline, understand, you know, what went wrong here on certain areas and what we're able to utilize remote sense data for and really kind of get a kickstart on those different planets and, and areas that we can explore and go to. 
find all the mountains that we need to climb on Mars, right? The quick, easy way. Yeah, just ask me. I'll, I'll run that <laughs> code for you anytime. <laughs> also, the, the new technology that is being developed in, in order to do these extraordinary things. Mm. You know, we talked about SpaceX and Elon Musk and everything that's going on there. It's just mind-boggling. I mean, every kind of week, there's a new mind-boggling thing, whether it's a an Elon Musk rocket or a, or a helicopter on Mars. Just the kind of pace of technology is 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 really fun and exciting and and i like all that stuff that's a great yeah. point because i can't even imagine like my daughter's 13 by the time she's you know out of college and beginning her career what's the technology going to be like there where, where have yeah. we been and where are we planning to go next you know yeah um, i mean the, big, the lessons the, the, we learned from mercury when we were growing up it was like okay the space shuttle was new and that was exciting but then sort of nothing and then we kind of went backwards again with soys there was no it wasn't anything like there is today. Well, I think that's interesting, actually, kind of taking us full circle, that there's a whole generation of people for whom the first boots on the moon they weren't born for. And then for years, it was sort of missions back to the International Space Station. And now, finally, we're going back to the moon yeah. again. You know, it feels like, actually, there's a load of people who don't have that memory of that first moon landing. Who are, there's a lot more excitement about it now, too, I think. Yeah. A lot more people are watching it. You think about the the helicopter up on Mars. I mean, I had a couple of texts from friends. Hey, are you watching this? What's going on? Where, you know, yeah. a couple of years ago, nobody really cared. As well, much. But that's it's, it's also the technology we've developed. I mean, whilst we haven't been exploring space, we've created this digital space, which mm. is in the last sort of 20, 30 years, which has really been the the adventure, if you like, and where we've where we've played and explored. And suddenly these two things are coming together. Yeah, right. You know, things like Mars and helicopters kind of wouldn't exist, I don't think, without social media, without that sense of participation of the general public that people like Elon Musk and now NASA are really starting to develop through social media. Yeah. yeah and, and that's really where I was was headed earlier, Susie, when I was asking about your your time on television and relating that to what Elon Musk has and SpaceX have done for the industry over the last 10 to 12 years is how many things like that, where space has become commercially part of our popular culture and the ability for the average person to get involved in the space industry in some way. There's so many people in the industry today that weren't classically trained in many of the space programs academically and, and made their way in that way, but they've come from other industries and have managed to, to make an impact. How many things like that wouldn't be possible with this emergence of the new space economy and, and groups and people like SpaceX and, and Elon Musk. But if you think about it, a lot of the people that are in the industry today that haven't come through traditional channels haven't been massively influenced by SpaceX because that's quite a recent thing. And some of these people kind of have been entering the industry from various different directions for many, many years now. I think yeah. what we'll see in the next decade is the influence of Elon Musk and the influence of the Artemis program with Boots on the Moon because those things are really, really inspiring. Even the helicopter on Mars, all of that stuff is super inspiring and, and that's really going to get people interested. And what we have to do is find avenues for people to get into the industry that don't involve a degree and a PhD in physics, for example. Because actually, as I know, there aren't that many magnetospheric physics jobs out there. We don't need many people necessarily to study the magnetospheres of the planets. We need people who are interested in designing spacesuits, people who are interested in radiation hardening events, you know, just a whole massive range of people that are involved in the industry that maybe have come through a route of doing something completely different, designing costumes. Well, you, the spacesuit people who designed the original spacesuits, Dallas, you have a story, don't you, about how they were underwear designers, right? Yeah, the Apollo, the Apollo lunar suits were designed by, well, ILC Dover, which was part of Playtex, who made bras and 
girdles and structured women's underwear and suddenly designed spaces so yeah. this is this is the kind of people thing with crafts, people, people with craft people with yeah you know they got yeah. they got them because they were Expertise. brilliant seamstresses and then you had to sew and exactly you know these skills are really really important so what we need really is for people to realize that they have skills that are relevant to the sector and yeah. you know it's possible for them to transition if they want to and be involved in the yeah. space horticulture <laughs> well you know growing growing understanding how plants grow that is looking need... at me and laughing because i love gardening and like yeah, hundreds you... of types of vegetable yeah. and i love it basically so, i can think yeah. anything you can do on earth space law is a good example yeah you know, great law example. is is a something that we need as we venture further into space and it gets more complicated but mm. we're going to need things like lawyers I can't believe I'm picking up lawyers. But space law is a thing. Whatever your thing is on earth, you're going to kind of need it in space. It's a a space for it in the industry. Yeah, definitely. I guess as we get close to the end of our, our time here, Susie, what would you recommend to someone who's not from the space industry that really wants to be a part of this. They're sitting at home or in their car and they're listening to this podcast. What's some way that they could get involved? Well, there's lots of avenues for finding out more about the industry more broadly. And and so, you know, understanding kind of where where it's going, where it is, where it's going and where your skills might fit in is great. And and there's there's sort of lots of avenues for people to to begin thinking about it. It's a massive growing industry in the UK. It employs a lot of people and around the world, in fact. And, And so... Kind of just an understanding of of sort of where it's going, I think, is really helpful, and and you can find that through many. Different so I was thinking a, something a, a little more specific, like maybe every other Thursday night they should attend Space Bar. I tell you what, Space Bar, and I'm I, obviously I'm biased, but it is brilliant. Just the the sheer variety of types of people, yeah. and, and the things that they do. Yeah. Like if you don't know much about space, if space for you is maybe Elon Musk every few months doing something wacky. Come to Spacebar and you will see just the extraordinary diversity of people and ideas and, and, and avenues and opportunities that exist. Yeah, Spacebar is brilliant, actually. It's 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 a hundred people. Who hosts, like that. Who, hosts who hosts Spacebar? Space we host after, Spacebar. After this podcast, the number will be in the thousands. All of our listeners will be attending. <laughs> the number will be, will be We will shut down servers for Spacebar. <laughs> I hope so. Yeah, it's a general chat, isn't it? Or about the industry more generally. Why don't we get that? What's his name? Elon Musk chat on the space. Oh, maybe we should invite him along. I'm sure he'd be delighted to join us. So this has been great, Susie. It's been a pleasure having you on. Dallas, as always, it's great to have you on. And these conversations are, are always a pleasure and fun. And both of you should feel free to come back anytime. Pop in, surprise us, jump in for the long conversations either way. Wait till we have some other great great guests and feel free to jump in and crash the party. We'd be happy to have you back. Again. That's great. We'd love to. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Space in 60. Stay tuned as we explore new journeys into space with our upcoming guests and talk about the evolution of the industry. Be sure to subscribe to the show so you don't miss any new episodes. And we would love your input and feedback. So send us your comments and questions, and we'll try to feature them in a future podcast. We'll catch you on the next episode of Space in 60, where new space speaks. Space.